encouraging. I invite you to turn this morning in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We'll read our text and then we'll pray together this morning. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God, we ask your blessing on the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, impress upon our hearts the glory and the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. I pray that you would humble us this morning with your gospel and that you would comfort us and grant us the security that comes from knowing our sins are paid for in full. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Give us eager hearts to receive your truth this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes we use big words in church. We use words that maybe not all the kids understand. And I think it was a couple weeks ago, one of my children had been trying to take notes. And she had a question written down, Dad, what does sufficiency mean? What does sufficiency mean? Mean? I think that's a good question for us to ask. Maybe you've seen that little bubble pop up on your phone when you're trying to take a video or take a picture. Maybe you're trying to download some music and you got a little error message that said insufficient storage. Have you guys ever seen that message before? What does that mean? Lori says, I see that all the time, taking pictures of those grandkids. Fills up the phone like that, right? Insufficient storage means there's not enough room. There's not enough space on your phone to store those files. Maybe, you don't have to raise your hands for this one, maybe some of us have gotten that message when we try to use a card, and it kicks back with an error and says, insufficient funds, which means you don't have enough money to make that purchase, right? There's not enough. Maybe some of you have tried to get a loan to purchase a new car, or maybe to buy a home, and your bank told you you had insufficient credit history, what does that mean? It means you don't have enough of a track record for that lender to trust you. There's something lacking with your credit history. Stephen nods because he knows what that's about. Insufficient basically means not enough. It means not enough. Now, there were some people in Paul's day who were teaching that Christ was not supreme and that his work on the cross was not enough. That the gospel, as preached by Epaphras and by Paul, was insufficient to secure for us eternal life and to carry us to the heights of the spiritual life that God intended. They were teaching that there was something more that you needed to experience eternal life. So Paul wrote this letter, the letter of Colossians, to uphold and explain and affirm the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. That is the theme of this letter. Supreme means that he is over all. He is fully God. He is divine in his nature. We see his glory in chapter 1 as the creator and the sustainer and the redeemer. And now in chapter 2, Paul affirms to us that not only is Jesus supreme, 
he is also perfectly and totally and completely sufficient. He is enough. If we are in him and he is in us, then as we saw two weeks ago, we are complete. We are filled in him. Paul's central argument in this book really boils down to what we find here in chapter 2. If you'll flip back, for me, it's the page before. In verse 6, he tells us, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And then the the flip side of that, the, the warning that comes with it, we see following. In verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is Paul's concern, both for the, his readers at Colossae and also for you and me today, that we would hold fast to Christ as supreme and that we would trust that his work and his truth, his gospel is sufficient. It's enough. There's not something more that we need. Now, the basis for this exhortation to hold fast to Christ, to stay rooted in him, is what we find here in verses 9 through 15 of chapter 2. We saw last time that Christ is supreme because he is God. In verse 9, it tells us, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And we found that we need nothing else because we are made complete in him. Verse 10. Paul upholds the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ, but he's not done, and neither are we. Paul goes on to explain exactly what Christ has done to make us complete. So if you were with us two weeks ago, we asserted and affirmed that if you are in Christ and he is in you, then you are complete. But now Paul explains exactly what Jesus has done to bring that about. The main point this morning is that the saving work of Christ is totally sufficient. What I'd like to do is look at what we experience when Christ saves us. To look at three different aspects of our salvation that Paul lays out for us here. Three outcomes, you could say of Christ's work on the cross for us. The first aspect of our salvation that is accomplished perfectly by Christ, number one, is that in Christ we receive a changed heart. We receive a changed heart. We see this in verses 11 through 12. Paul says, in him, speaking of Christ, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, there's a lot here. This is a dense and difficult, somewhat beefy, um, and linguistically awkward even, for some of us in a mixed audience, section of Scripture. But what is Paul talking about? Why does he bring up this idea of circumcision? Because to you and me, as we're reading this, this might seem like it's sort of out of left field. Why would he bring this topic to bear, talking about what Jesus has done for us. But when you understand the the background of the Old Testament, when you understand Paul's background as a Jewish scholar, preaching about a Jewish Messiah, who's bringing the blessings of salvation that were originally promised to the Jewish people and bringing them now to the Gentiles, then you'll understand why Paul brings circumcision up here. First, we have to understand what is the significance of circumcision in the Old Testament. Because when we understand that, we can see how Paul's using it here. Well, if you go back to Genesis, if you remember our series through Genesis, you'll remember that circumcision, this physical rite, this little surgery, was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. 
It was a sign of the covenant that they belonged to God and that God was their God, that they were a unique people set apart by God and committed to him. It became a sign of their purity and their separation, their cleanness set apart from the unclean world. And it was a sign of the promise. But this physical circumcision was symbolic. A physical circumcision did not save anyone. It rather pointed them to a deeper need. John MacArthur writes that this physical procedure of circumcision was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. No other part of the human anatomy so demonstrates the depth of sin inasmuch that it's the part of man that produces life and all that he produces is sinful. Sin is inherited from our father, Adam. And so the people, this, this sign of circumcision really was symbolic of the fact that we as people needed more than a physical procedure to make us right with God, to enable us to have a relationship with him, to deal with the problem in our soul. We need spiritual heart surgery. And this is true even in the Old Testament. This was the expectation. Moses told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 10, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. He's using this as a metaphor to say, there's something wrong with you on the inside, something that needs to be cut off, something that needs to be put away. You have a hard, stubborn heart. And that has to change. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, the prophet Jeremiah it communicates the same idea. He says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds, sin and judgment, the human condition. How do we find resolution to this problem we have? There has to be a heart change. There has to be something radically occurring in the hearts of sinful people. But no matter how hard God's people tried to keep the law, no matter how hard they tried to do what, what Moses commanded, no matter how they tried to do what God commanded through Jeremiah, they ultimately failed. They could not bring about this change in their own hearts. They could not love God as they ought. They could not obey him as they should. Their hearts were hard, and so are ours. But the good news was that God promised to provide this spiritual change by his gracious power. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. The results of this spiritual change that God would bring about would be a new ability and desire to love God as we should. And it would bring about life instead of death. That was God's promise to his people. Later in Ezekiel, is, as, as Ezekiel records for us the promise of a new covenant, God says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This was the promise that God's people were waiting on, that God would bring about this change of heart that they were powerless to accomplish, but God, by his grace, had promised to provide. This is what Paul is talking about here when he says, in him, in Christ, 
you were circumcised. He says you experience this change of heart through your relationship with Jesus Christ. He says it's a circumcision, look in verse 11, that is made without hands. He's talking about a spiritual reality. It's through faith in Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. And this change, this this spiritual change is brought about specifically through Christ's work on the cross. Look at what he says. This circumcision made without hands, how is it brought about? By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. What Paul's saying here is that through our union with Christ, it's by our, our union with him, through the power of his saving work, that we experience this change. Paul says we are buried with him in baptism. What does he mean here? This is symbolic, as we mentioned last week, of our union with Christ. By faith, his death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. And what happens then is that the body of the flesh, the sinful part of our nature, is put off. It's put to death. In Romans chapter 6, verse 6, it says, We know that our old self, the old me that had the hard heart, the old me that was stubborn, the old me that didn't worship God and instead pursued my own will, my own pleasure, did what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it, that was enslaved to sin and addicted to my own wicked desires. Romans 6 says, Our old self was crucified with him crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. At the, at the cross, if you're a believer in Christ, at the cross, your old man, your old person was put to death. Now, this does not mean that there will be no battles against the flesh for believers. And we'll see that in chapter three, that while our old man has been put to death in chapter three, it tells us, In verse 5, that we must put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us. There's still a battle against the flesh. We still carry it around with us. But the fact that our self, our old self, has been crucified with Christ means that our sin nature no longer has the final say. It means that we are no longer enslaved to our sin. We have a new power, a new ability, a new freedom to say no when our sinful heart wants to disobey God. When our sinful heart does not want to do what God is commanding us to do. It no longer has absolute power over us. The power of sin has been broken. And one day when we see Christ, either at our death or at his return, then we will be set free even from the very presence of indwelling sin. How is this brought about? Is it through our good works and our efforts? Is it through understanding these secret, fancy philosophies that these false teachers were preaching? Is it through seeking out some mystical experience, talking to angels or spirits? No, Paul says this is ours through our union with Christ. Jesus does this in us. Jesus does this for us. Notice not only do we share in Christ's death, we're in a sense buried with him in baptism, But in verse 12, it also says we share in his life. It says, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The God who raised Jesus up from the dead is the one who makes us alive. And here's the amazing thing. When you and I place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, 
Not only is the power of sin broken, but also the very effect of sin on us starts to be undone. It's reversed. We know that through sin comes death, spiritual death and physical death. But through Christ, we are granted life, not just eternal life in the future when we go to heaven, but eternal life that starts now. It springs up within, Jesus says, like a well that is overflowing. Life in us now that we share, we share in his life. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul can say the old me is dead, crucified with Christ, and the new me, the new me, that's the life of Christ in me. This change of heart has been brought about in us by Christ. He is able to break the power of sin. He is able to make us alive. And as we'll see next week, the false teachers prescribed all kinds of rituals and rules to overcome the flesh. But Paul reminds us that the flesh has been definitively dealt with at the cross. It's through our union with Christ that we experience this change of heart that he calls spiritual circumcision, showing that we have now been set apart to God. We belong to him, and we have been made new, made clean. His work in us is sufficient. In Christ, we receive this change of heart. But secondly, Paul points out that in Christ, we also receive forgiveness of sin. Look in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So at the cross, we've seen that Jesus breaks the power of sin and he begins to reverse the consequences of sin by dealing with sin itself. He deals with sin itself by granting us forgiveness. We were, Paul says, dead in our trespasses. What does trespass mean? Again, that's one of those big words. Trespasses means to, to overstep a boundary, to cross the line. And that's a good description of what sin is. When you and I disobey God, we are crossing the line. We are breaking the boundary that God has established. Those are our trespasses. Those are specific sins that you and I have committed. But Paul doesn't just say that God deals with our trespasses. He also deals with the uncircumcision of our flesh. The uncircumcision of our flesh, again, is not just the things we've done. That's who we are. We sin because we are sinners, and we are sinners because we sin. It's not just what we do. It's part of our very nature. But again here, Paul is showing us that God is dealing with all of this. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Again, he makes us alive, brings this change. But how? How does God bring about this change? He does it through forgiving our sins. He makes a big contrast here between who we were before Christ and then who we are after trusting in Christ. Notice who we were. He says, you were dead, dead in your trespasses and circumcision. Because of sin, we were blind. 
dead people can't see anything. They can't tell if the lights are on and their lights are off. They can't see what's going on around them. They're dead. Dead people are deaf. They hear nothing. Dead people have no life, no breath, no strength, no power, no pulse. Dead people are unconscious to what is going on around them. And Paul says that before you knew Christ, you were unconscious to the realities of sin and grace and truth and the gospel. But God has, has undone all of that and made us alive. And he says he's done this by forgiving our sins and our trespasses. What is forgiveness? What does it mean to forgive someone? God's forgiveness is better than our forgiveness. We don't always forgive as we should. We don't always forgive faithfully. We don't always forgive completely, but God's forgiveness is perfect. When God forgives, it doesn't just mean he lets things slide. Because he is just, all debts must be paid. Justice must be rendered. And we see that justice was rendered at the cross. He's forgiven us all our trespasses. How? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. At the cross... Jesus deals with our trespasses. At the cross, Jesus pays our debt. At the cross, the justice of God is satisfied as his righteous wrath is poured out against every single one of your sins and mine. Forgiven us of all our trespasses through what Jesus did at the cross. I think too often we have a deficient understanding of what all our trespasses means. I like what John Piper defines sin as. He says, what is sin? The glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The promises of God not relied upon. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. That is sin. Run your life through that grid. I think we'll start to understand that our trespasses, our sins, are far more numerous, far more regular than we could even realize. But God, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Imagine a list for a moment of all of your sins. All of your secret thoughts. All of your sexual sins. Your substance abuse. Your harsh words. Your lies. Your proud attitude. Your selfish actions. Idolatrous desires. Every moment of impatience your unrighteous anger, your envy and jealousy towards others, the bitterness that you've harbored in your heart, the hatred, 
your failure to obey all that God commands, and your violation of what God has prohibited. Imagine for a moment standing in God's courtroom. And this list of all of your crimes against God's glory is brought in as evidence. And it's read before the judge, line by line by line. And the punishment that those sins deserves is death. And you know that you're guilty. The legal demand, as Paul puts it, is eternal judgment in hell. This is what each of us rightly deserves. This would be the just punishment for our sins. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Is there any among us this morning that could stand before God on your own two feet in light of that list and have anything to say for yourself? We would not have a word to answer him. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But the psalmist tells us these beautiful words, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The wonderful good news is that that list of your sins, that long flowing scroll, mine would look like a couple phone books stacked together, okay? That list, that record of our debt against God has been canceled. It's been canceled. No longer is the punishment looming over our heads. How? God set it aside, Paul says, nailing it to the cross. When, he set, when it says he set it aside, that he has taken it out of the way, the tense of this verb indicates it was something accomplished that has this sense of permanence to it. Once and for all, it has been nailed to the cross. I can go in my house and I can pop off a picture that I've nailed to the wall and, and remove it and put it somewhere else, but our sins have been nailed to the cross permanently. They're not coming off again. Once and for all, God has dealt with your sins and my sins by nailing them to the cross. They cannot be brought back up again. They will not be recycled. It is no longer admissible in God's court of law. It's been taken out of the way. It's been nailed to the cross. At a specific point in history, your sins and mine were nailed to the cross. I think there's an allusion here even to, to, if you remember the crucifixion of Christ, do you remember what Pilate wrote on a scroll? He wrote the charges against Jesus, king of the Jews, and he nailed that superscription to the head of the cross. This is the reason why Christ was being crucified. He mockingly wrote, king of the Jews. But God put his son on the cross bearing a different label. The charges for which Jesus was crucified in God's court were your sins and mine. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he, speaking of God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what the prophet Isaiah wrote about when he says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every single one of us to his own way. But the Lord has what? Laid on him the iniquities of us all. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This list that's been nailed to the cross was internalized by the person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus was nailed to the cross. And God punished him, treating him as if he were the vile sinner, made up of the composite sins of your wickedness, my wickedness, and all believers who have ever lived. That is what God has done for us in Christ. All our sins, every single one of them, have been nailed to the cross. That's why we can sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Why can you and I stand in a room like this and sing, it is well with my soul, if there's this massive list of sins that we've committed that deserve death? Only because that list has been taken out of the way and nailed to the cross. Every single one of them. If my sins are nailed to the cross, it means they've been dealt with once and for all. The debt is paid. It is, as Jesus said, finished. The righteousness of God is satisfied. Because Jesus bore the wrath of God's justice, you and I can be forgiven and receive his mercy. And Christ's work, listen to this, Christ's work on the cross is sufficient to deal with our sins. It is enough And if someone says there's something more that's needed, they are blaspheming the blood of Christ and saying what the Son of God did just doesn't cut it. May we never think or say such things. What Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to deal with our sin. So we've seen two aspects of the salvation we have in Christ. It's in Christ that we experience this change of heart as we're spiritually circumcised And it's in Christ that we receive complete and perfect forgiveness for sins. But there's a third aspect of our salvation that Paul brings out. In Christ, we have victory over the forces of evil. We have victory over our foes. Look in verse 15. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is something amazing. I think we often think of the cross in terms of how it relates specifically to us. But God was doing something that was cosmic in its scope when Jesus died and rose again. The cross means mercy for us. It's good news for sinners. But it's bad news for God's enemies. It means shame for the powers of darkness. Paul glories here in the triumph of Christ over his enemies. Since the beginning, there's been this cosmic war between the powers of darkness and the people of God. In Genesis 3, God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan opposes God. Satan opposes God's people. And Jesus bore the brunt of that malice. If you just look through the life of Christ, we see that right after Jesus was born, Herod kills all these babies in and around Bethlehem. Yes, Herod is a psychopath and he's paranoid, but more than that, Satan wants to kill the Messiah. He doesn't want him to rescue us from our sin. Later is Jesus, right after he was baptized, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And who does Jesus meet in the wilderness? Do you know? Satan, he comes to tempt him, to get him to fall so that we would have no hope of a second Adam who could reconcile us to God. He failed both of those times, but Satan wasn't done. There was a man named Judas who was one of Christ's disciples. 
He heard every sermon that Jesus preached. He saw every miracle. He ate with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. Jesus washed his feet. And yet Judas did not believe. And in Luke 22, 3, it says that Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Satan wanted Jesus dead. And he got his wish, didn't he? And for a moment, he thought he had won. Satan thought he could kill God. And for three days, as Jesus lay in the tomb, he thought that he had been victorious. But when the sun rose on Sunday, it shined light on this empty tomb to reveal that the sun had risen on Sunday. The stone was gone. Jesus was alive. And Paul tells us that this triumph over the spiritual powers of darkness has put them to shame. For all his power and shrewdness and malice, Satan was an instrument, a tool, a tool who unwittingly furthered God's plan for redemption. Paul says that through Christ, God has disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Do you guys remember back in 2015 it was? When the Royals won the World Series, when they came back in early November, there was a massive parade in downtown Kansas City, 800,000 plus. I didn't go because I don't like big crowds and parades, even though I like the Royals, but I didn't want to be there. But a lot of people did go. Did any of you guys go to that by chance? A couple of people were there. That's a lot of people. And everyone was crowding around the streets to see these guys who were local heroes go by, holding up this trophy, holding up this big you know, gold and silver cup, you know, the, the World Series trophy, and, and wearing their T-shirts that said World Series champions, and everybody's cheering and clapping, celebrating their victory. Well, in Roman times, when a, when a general of an army would be successful in defeating a foreign army, conquering a, a foreign kingdom, they would have a parade when they returned home. But instead of carrying a big trophy... They would lead the vanquished generals and the fallen rulers and kings of that, of that warring nation. They would be dragging them along behind. They wouldn't be carrying their spears and swords. They were disarmed. And they were put to shame. As little kids crowded along the curb inside and smiled and watched them go by. They were shamed in front of everyone. Disarmed. They were made to be a public spectacle both to humiliate the enemies of the Roman Empire, but also to give glory to the general. Those generals and those, those, um, those victorious soldiers were given these wreaths and these crowns and flowers were thrown and there was great celebration. Paul's drawing on that imagery, this parade imagery, this victory imagery of enemies being disarmed and then paraded and made a spectacle to refer to what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection. Think about it. Every one of us who reads the Gospels today, we hear this story of Christ triumphing over Satan, and we smile, and we watch with no fear because Satan has been humiliated. His plans have been thwarted, and our Savior, Jesus Christ, our King, is victorious. Although Satan still may prowl like a roaring lion, we know that the war is over. It's just a matter of the time on the clock running out, and his days are numbered. We know who wins. We know that Jesus won. Christ died and rose again. Hebrews chapter 2 says this in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, 
He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. You see, Satan has two primary weapons that he's always used in his war against the people of God, his war against those who are made in his image. Satan tempts us to sin and enslaves us to sin because that sin leads to death and judgment and hell. So those are the two primary tactics Satan uses. He wants us to be enslaved to sin and then to be crushed by death. But what did Jesus do with the cross? He dealt with sin. And he broke the power of death by his resurrection. Satan's two favorite weapons have been broken. The blades snapped in half. No longer do we have to be afraid of those things because Christ has triumphed over them and disarmed our enemy. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan has been disarmed. And he's been put to shame. Because Jesus has triumphed over him. Curtis Bond writes that to the casual observer, the cross appears to be only an instrument of death. The symbol of Christ's defeat. Paul represents it as Christ's chariot of victory. And that's what it is for us, isn't it? We glory in our Redeemer, the one who died and rose again. And the cross to us is a symbol of forgiveness and victory. This is what Jesus has done, Paul writes, in us and what Jesus has done for us. His work of salvation is totally sufficient. We are complete in him and we need nothing else. There's so many reasons why Christless philosophy, empty human traditions, Empty worldly mysticism is inferior to the true gospel of Christ because none of those things can complete us. None of those things can change our hearts. None of those things can deal with our problem of sin. None of those things can overcome our spiritual enemies. Why would we trade everything that we have in Christ for something so empty and powerless? Paul says you don't need all that. If you have Christ, he is sufficient. All we need for salvation is found in him. To move away from Christ, therefore, would be to abandon our hope and our freedom and our life and enter into spiritual captivity. Christ is the only and the perfectly sufficient Savior. In closing, I just want to encourage you in response to do three things. If you're taking notes, these are alliterated. I don't always line everything up with the same letters, but this popped into my head and seemed simple and and helps me remember, so I'll share it with you. And it's reject, rest, and rejoice. First of all, reject. Refuse to believe the lie that Christ's work is not sufficient. Reject the lie that we need more than Jesus for spiritual life. Reject that. Secondly, rest. Rest. By faith, Trust in God's promise of salvation through Christ. You can rest in that with confidence. Know that Jesus is sufficient. This is the source of our comfort, isn't it? When we sin, when we stumble, we know that those sins have been nailed to the cross. When we feel like we're far from God, we know that through faith we actually have union with Christ and our hearts have been changed and we truly belong to him. We can rest knowing that even though our enemies may rage, 
Christ has overcome. This is the source of our contentment and our comfort, that our salvation is secure in Christ. And then finally, rejoice. Rejoice. This truth of Christ's sufficiency, his, his work on the cross, is a cause for eternal worship. The life and forgiveness and victory we have in Jesus means that our deepest need has been met. It's been met by God's undeserved grace. There's this beautiful vision in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where the apostle John gazes into the throne room of heaven. He says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's the joy and the rest, the rejoicing, the confidence that is ours in Christ. And we don't have to wait till that day to sing that song. We get to sing it today. Let's hold fast to Christ because he is a completely sufficient Savior. Everything we need for salvation, Jesus provides. Lord, we praise you and thank you for all that you have done for us through Christ. You are the one who has the power to change our hearts. You are the one who has secured forgiveness of sins through the blood of your son, nailing him to the cross. You are the one who has triumphed over your enemies and ours through the cross and the glorious resurrection. Lord, give us comfort this morning as we are reminded of our sins. Perhaps there's some in here today who wrestle with guilt and with shame, with condemnation, they feel far from you. They feel that they've done too many bad things to really be loved by you. Or that they've not done nearly enough good things to be able to enter into your presence with confidence. I pray that they would look to the cross and see that the record of our debt has been canceled. It's been nailed there. I pray that they would believe by faith that Christ is sufficient and that forgiveness can be theirs. Pray, Lord, that we would preach this message with boldness and compassion to those whose hearts have not yet been changed, those whose sins have not yet been nailed to the cross, those who are still enslaved and doomed to die. Lord, give us the confidence not only to hold to your gospel for ourselves, but to proclaim it to all who will hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.